Folks, the Let's Run.com site redesign is here. We launched it one week ago. We hope you love it. We spent a lot of time and a lot of resources on it to take the website Let's Run 2.0 into the 2020s and beyond. VIC subscribers, your subscriptions helped make this possible. Thank you so much. Thank you for supporting independent journalism. Come on, podcast listeners. If you want to do the same, if you want to help us out, we'll send you a free shirt. Go to letsrun.com slash subscribe. Do it now. We appreciate it. If you've got any ideas how we can make the website even better, shoot us an email, pod at letsrun.com, pod at letsrun.com. Now to the podcast. Hello everyone, welcome to this week's edition of the Let's Run.com Track Talk Podcast. We are coming to you straight after Grant Holloway's 7.29 world record in the 60 meter hurdles in Madrid. That and much, much more to come. We're going to talk about Seb Coe losing his British record in the 800 to not one, but two men in the same race last week. Mark Scott and Elise Cranny got the win at the 10 in California. They led 10 athletes under the Olympic standard. We'll talk about that. We've got Caitlin Tui making her collegiate debut for NC State on the track. And we're going to talk about what Poland, Spain, France, Germany, the Netherlands, Italy, Sweden, Russia, and Switzerland all did that the United States could not, and that is hold a national championships in indoor track. Very excited podcast this week. And... and and much more, John. And it's got to be a personal highlight for you. At the end of the show, we've got a great, fantastic interview with arguably the greatest Dartmouth track and field alum in history, although I think Adam Nelson tops him. But we're joined by guest Ben True of Dartmouth College, where John Galt is a graduate of. He talks about his 27-14 PB in the 10K. That was a 25-plus second PB at age 35. Why he's still grinding it out. He talks about that. Super Shoes, chasing his first Olympic team. It's an amazing interview, folks. And he reveals on the podcast that he is paying someone. He's unsponsored, but he pays someone $20,000 a year to train with him so he can seek glory. He's going to make a marathon debut. It was, it was re- John, as an older guy myself, talking to the 35-year-old True was rejuvenating. It was amazing. I hated the guy for... Five years when I was coaching at Cornell, he made my life miserable. But now he and I are on the same team. I'm so excited. There is a part in there, folks, John, in the interview. It is going to be my personal victory tour. I don't want to. I don't want to. Just everyone listen to the interview at the end. There's a clip in there that he says something about the super shoes that is the ultimate vindication for yours truly. I guess I'm happy for you, Robert. I do think it was a great interview, but. Uh... You know, we got a lot of track action to talk to talk about before we get to the Ben stuff. But uh, yeah, looking forward to it, guys. I don't even know why you waste your time talking to Ben True. Was he like the seventh place finisher in some rando race that meant nothing with super shoes? Well, hello, Malcolm Gladwell. I know you're listening right now. We might, probably need to redo the intro. I don't know how how the sound quality was in that. No, sounds like a fascinating interview. You guys are all into this Ben True, but. Like, times are becoming meaningless. Like, this 10K race was crazy, but I don't think we start there. I think we start with, well, the craziest world record I've seen in a long time. Just maybe not in how it was run, but in how it came about. 
And that was Grant Holloway moments ago, running 7.29. It only took him 7.29 seconds to break the world record, but it took him about four minutes to realize he actually broke the record, despite all the photographers knowing he'd broken the world record and handing him a placard saying he broke the world record, but the announcers on TV and Grant Holloway himself didn't know. Bizarre theater, to say the least. Let's go. Here's what happened. So this is the Madrid. It's the final meet of the World Athletics Indoor Tour. Grant Holloway said before the race, he wants to break the world record. He came, he's come within 200ths going in, which is his American record, number two all time behind Colin Jackson's world record of 7.30. In the prelims, he runs a 7.34 to win his heat today. And then that time gets adjusted down by 200ths down to 7.32, tying his own American record. So I'm like, that's kind of interesting. Like most times you don't get a time adjusted by 0.02. It's usually like 0.01 or something like that. And then we get to the final and he runs a pretty, I mean, it's a pretty phenomenal race. I mean, watching Grant Holloway go over the hurdles, it just looks like his body was designed to run hurdle races. He takes these long, powerful strides. He's so fluid. I mean, he's really a, it's a treat to be able to watch him fly over these hurdles. And he breaks the tape, you know, he crosses the finish line, 7.32, and he's, like, looking a little disappointed. He's like, oh, man, I mean, 7.32 is great for anyone else, but for a guy going for the world record, he's a little bummed out about it. And then suddenly, like, about a minute after the race, these photographers start handing him this world record placard. And he's looking, he's, like, refuses to take it. He's like, no, I'm not taking any pictures with that. Like, I didn't get the world record. And then finally, like he turns around in the video screen and it just says world record on the screen. It doesn't say what time it was. It just says world record and all the cameramen are like, yeah, take it. So he starts smiling and takes pictures. And then we get it revealed 7.29. So his time was rounded down three hundredths of a second. I don't know about you guys. I've been watching track and field for probably a little over a decade at this point. I can't ever remember a time being rounded down by... 300s. I'm not saying. I mean, I look. I don't know how this timing stuff works. I just thought it was kind of weird, right? Wasn't a great look. It was. I've actually done FAT timing before, John Cornell. We used to have to time our own meets, but some sort of automatic sensor that gets. It. I mean, you want to be. You'd rather be too slow than too fast. So I think that they purposely try to be too slow because you don't want to put up world record and then have it not be a world record. Yeah, but point oh point oh three is a lot. Um, Immediately when it ended, I did post on the message board. That's the shadiest world record ever. Um, even Tim Hitchings, him, Tim Hutchings on the commentary is like, it would be very convenient. And then sure enough, it did happen. But I've deleted that comment, and I want to focus on the positive. I mean, let's. Uh, this is not the first world indoor tour event that had timing issues. You know, you can get better timing companies, but they're expensive. So, you know, I think it was that other meet, they were just stopping the clock like four seconds too early, which was really messing up the world record. So we've had several world records set indoors, and they've messed up the timing on seemingly all of them. So we got to focus on that for 2022. But, John, you and I have just finished the recap that I'm sure the world is reading. Byline by Jonathan Galton, Robert Johnson on this record and his amazing season. And there's a stat in there that I didn't realize. Jonathan's researched this. Guys and gals, you guys realize Grant Hallway has never lost a 60-hurdle race over this, these heights, over the 42-inch barriers ever in his life. He's 41 for 41, which is remarkable because it's very easy to lose a 60-hurdle race. If you make any mistake at all, there's not time to recover from it. And a 110-hurdle race, you can make a slight mistake and make up for it. 60-hurdle race, uh, you're kind of screwed. 
He's never lost prelims or final every time. Victory, 41 for 41, and then the season for the ages. I mean, how many times, John, did he break the American record? So he broke the American record. I mean, he broke it twice, uh, but he also tied it two other times. So, yeah, it's kind of hard to keep track. It's when You know you're having a good season when it's kind of hard to keep track of how many times he broke the American record. And then the thing I, I put in, in, in this article was he's only 23. His pro career has just started. And yet in college, he was a perfect six for six at NCAA championships, three indoor, three outdoor in the hurdles, sets collegiate records, both indoors and outdoors. The first collegiate hurdler under 13. If he wins, and he's already won the world title. If he wins Olympic gold this year, I mean, he's already a legend. Um, but it's kind of weird. I, I talked about him being only 23 and just getting started. We got to remember, though, it's weird. Even though he just started as a pro, Usain Bolt, his PRs were set at 23. Rob, I think I've seen that stat tried out a lot of times, though. And look, I, I know that's when Usain Bolt set his personal best, but like that doesn't mean people can't keep PRing into their 20s. Like it doesn't mean you're done at age 23. Like Bolt, I think if he had stayed healthy, could have PR'd again maybe in 2010 or 2011 or 2012. You know, but he didn't have that. He started to get injury issues. So I don't know. I, 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 don't, I don't think this means like, oh, he can't break the world record. Like I am so excited right now to see what Grant Holloway does outdoors because pretty much anytime someone says like puts a limit on him or thinks he's done being amazing, he, he comes out and breaks through that barrier. So I'm very excited to see what he does over the 110 meter hurdles in the outdoor season. I mean, Grant's super amazing. I can't believe he's never lost a 60 meter hurdle race at this height. I mean, that's crazy. Like, as Robert said, if anything goes wrong, you lose. But the guy is just, I forgot. I mean, his nickname's Superman, right? He really can do it all. I mean, he's run four by fours for Florida. I, I mean, he can, I don't know what he can throw a discus can shot, but his, ama- his athleticism is so amazing. Long jumps. Oh, he man. won the 60 at NCAA indoors and then he can split like I think he split a 43 on one of their 4x4s he definitely 44 I think he might have done a 43 once like he, he's a ridiculous talent and then he's really funny and stuff like with the media he's very good like he's just an all around interesting freak of nature in a very good way like on the track off the track if this is you know, if this is going to be the face, a face of track and field for the next 10 years, it's a good one to have. For sure. A couple other notable results from that meet in Madrid. There was talk. Gudolf Sagai was trying to break the world record at 3,000 meters, and she asked the pacemaker to come through in 405. The world record is 816 by Gonzabe de Barba. Uh, ended up, they were 409 at halfway, and the second half, Sagai, she kind of looked tired or maybe like Tim Hutchings was debating is she not interested in breaking the world record anymore I think at this I think the pace was just taking its toll and she was running against her training partner Lem Lem Hailu who's been running very well this year and they kind of ended up trading laps and Sagai still at the end she still blew her away she ran 822 which is number two all time indoors behind the barber still very impressive and Hailu was second in 829 28 so that was a decent race and then the 1500 Selman Borrega tried to break the world record. He was going out super fast. He passed the rabbit about 30, 60, 600 meters in. 
and he ended up fading. I think he ran 30 seconds for his last penultimate lap or whatever. So he only ran 335, but still got the win there. Yeah, John, saying Borrego was trying to break in the world record is like saying the 12-year-old at the local 5K was trying to break the 5K world record. So, well, hold on. Let me, I mean, let's just use the numbers here, Weldon. Salmon Borrego earlier this year ran 332 for 1,500 meters. The world record is 331. I mean, I don't think it's outrageous to suggest that he could break that world record. The world record, whoa, I'm going to show my ignorance. It's only 331 indoors? Yeah, I, what's Walton doing? I I watched this race and thought he looked amazing for the first half, and the, I had two thoughts on this. I thought, my God, it, it's a shame that these African runners don't get the same resources of the Bowerman Track Club. Imagine if Jerry Schumacher was coaching this guy, set everything up with perfect pacers, he probably would break the world record. And the second thing I thought of was, why is Jacob Ingebrigtsen dunking this guy? I'm not saying Jacob Ingebrigtsen is scared of him, but can, can the meet organizers not get the best people to race each other? We have Ingebrigtsen running way ahead of everybody in a meet a few weeks ago with no competition. Then Borrega runs way ahead of everyone in a meet today. You know, it just seems like we can't get Hopple and Brazier to race each other. Like, this sport is driving me insane. Like, if this was set up properly with Ingebrigtsen, with a Borrega, I think the world record would have fallen in these super spikes. Well, I do believe that Ingebrigtsen is going to be running the European Indoor Championships next week, so maybe he didn't want to race, you know, I guess it's 10 days out or whatever. Maybe he didn't want to do that. Okay, thank you, John. I don't really think he's ducking him. I just I didn't know why he was there. It was annoying to me as a fan. If he's got Europeans, that's a good excuse. But let's talk about Borrega. I mean, he's been insane. I thought also, where was Wiley? I thought Wiley, the 724 steeple, was supposed to be in this race. He ended up being a DNS. But Borrega, to me, has to be... Are, are we considering... I was going to say, I mean, this is crazy. I almost said, is he the favorite for the 5,000? Then I'm like, wait a minute. We've got Joshua Chepta guy as the world record holder. And we got Caplimo who is insane. This is why I am so excited for the event that the IAAF was going to cancel the 5,000 this summer. I mean, Borrega had a great indoor season, 334, 332, 335, undefeated in four races in the 1,500, 726 in the 3,000, and a 2758, 10,000. He's in supreme form. It's going to be amazing this summer. Yeah, for sure. No, I'm very excited about that. And actually, one last thing on Holloway. I don't think this is the first world record, well, at least on the track, this is the first world record recently that I feel like we don't need to talk about the spikes. Uh, I guess we don't talk about the Sagai. Sagai also broke it in the old the old shoes. But like, you know, this, the sp- sprint spike revolution has yet to happen and it looks like it won't be happening with these Viperflies. Or at least it's been delayed with the Nike not allowed to release their Viperflies by World Athletics. So there's not going to be any worrying about like, oh, Holloway had the super spikes. This is why you want run. You know, the the least, you, the only thing you could maybe say is the race was at two thousand meters. Sorry, two thousand feet of altitude. He got maybe a slight bump, but I, no, I think this is a pretty legit world record. And it's happy. I'm happy. I don't have to say, oh, what spikes was he wearing? I can just appreciate the run. John Holloway is like the face of Adidas. If anyone's going to have their super spike on, it's him. He may have had the spike on. I think you need to ask what shoes were being worn. Shoe experts email us pod at let'srun.com what shoes he has on. I think we should move on from the Madrid meet. Speaking of super shoes, there was an interesting article out of the Times of London by Matt Lawton, friend of let'srun.com. He's the guy who, when working at the Daily Mail, went and knocked on Alberto Salazar's door. This article is titled, 
Nike super shoe shelved over fears they could have undermined Bolt's legacy. And this is the first sentence is Nike has shelved a super shoe for sprinters after rival manufacturers expressed fears they would allow an inferior athlete to wipe out Usain Bolt's world records. When I first read this article, I'm like, what? This doesn't make any sense. Like, there's no way Nike just pulled a shoe because it's too good. But then we discussed this internally. And you guys noted that there is one more sentence later on in the article where it says, experts have told the Times that the shoe may not have met the new criteria for approval amid concerns that its spike plate was acting as a secondary spring. I don't know. With like uh, almost four days to think about this, I think it just shows like these shoes are acting as springs. It's just how good they are and how far do you push it and where you draw the line. Because if it's too good, Nike's like, oh shit, we can't do it. This one may not get approved. But... I don't think this is as clear-cut as it is people making it out to be. Well, I think the timing is the key thing here. If this had been the first shoe, like if this had been introduced like the Vaporfly was on the roads and it's just this whole new thing, World Athletics would have been behind the eight ball and they probably would have just allowed, these shoes probably would have already come onto the market and people would have been using them in races and these records would have been tumbling and we would have had the same thing that we'd had in Vaporfly. This time, they at least had a little bit of heads up that they knew, oh, okay, we already saw this happen on the roads, and we saw it last year on the track. Now, granted, well, they also had the Dragonfly come out last year, but I think once World Athletics put in those the shoe rules, their first revision was January of 2020, I believe. Nike, it seems like, realized, oh, these shoes aren't actually going to be legal under those rules, and they, they weren't able to submit them. Well, John, I'm excited because I love to talk shoes, and we're going to be talking shoes all year long, if not longer. But I do think it will be big, big, big news if Usain Bolt's record goes down because of shoes. That's when it'll hit the public's attention in, in a big way. So should we move on to the tent? Yes, because I imagine you probably want to I mean, Robert, just to set the record straight here, it's not that I don't... It's not that I want to just totally ignore shoe talk and that sort of thing. I, It's obviously an important... It's changing the sport right now. We need to address it. I just think... I get worried when we talk about nothing but the shoes. That's just what... I don't want this to become a shoes-only podcast. I want us to remember there are actual athletes who improve and the shoes may help their improvement, but they're also you know doing other things that lead to that improvement as well. Like, Kieran Tantivate didn't go from, you know, a 1357 guy at Harvard to 2717 just because he strapped on a pair of dragonflies. No, we're going to... I didn't say he did. We're going to talk about that in a second, and Ben True's going to talk about it. But if anything, I think we're underplaying the shoot talk. Um, I mean, think big picture here, John. If On last week's podcast, if I told you, we should have really... We, we should think forward and predict things. Like, if I told you... Two guys we've never heard of are going to break Stepco's 38-year-old, you know, British record. Okay, we've heard of these guys, but one, of, you know, neither one of them has ever made a world final. They're going to break Stepco's 38-year-old indoor record, and then, you know, yeah, Ben True's going to run a 25-second-plus PB at age 35. Kieran Tuntevit, the Harvard guy, is going to run a 36-second. I mean, uh, he, he's going to run 27-17. We wouldn't have believed any of this stuff. So it's just hard not to mention it and mention it often. But anyways, I, I was talking about, we got an interesting email from um, 
from Bart von Alst, a.k.a. Stanhope on the message boards. And he was writing you, John, and he basically was saying, look, as journalists, you know, I think that this could be good for the sport. But the key is, John, you have to no longer talk about times in your recaps. Times are meaningless. We just need to focus on competition. So we'll now just, we need John to, to highlight the importance of the meet. So don't focus on the prickly pear invite or the 10 because it's a meaningless meet. We need to like sort of shame the Bowerman athletes into running big meets like the Prefontaine Classic. And I just didn't agree with this because to me, at its essence, you can't ignore times. The average person, what are they doing? The recreational runner, they are going out and they are racing the clock. They're saying, how fast can I run? And the 100, 200, 400, what is it? You're not racing other people. You're in your own damn lane and you're running as fast as you can. So yes, technology advances and it's hard to stop that. I don't want to sound like a Luddite, but when every race every meet has this amazing time, it sort of dampens the significance of it. And I said I wasn't going to reveal the key Ben True word, but I will reveal the key Ben True word between probably the 10 and 15 minute mark of our interview with him. He says something along the lines of, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this on my phone and play it whenever I want to for the next year. He says, times don't mean anything anymore. I think that they actually do mean something, but they don't mean as much as they used to be. So... Let's talk about the 10 now, John, because this is the perfect segue into it. Yeah, and look, a meet like this, look, I think you're slightly misconstruing Bart's point here. He's not, like, he acknowledges these huge, these meets, like, it's kind of hard to get excited about. We need more meets where the outcome actually matters. Like, the Prefontaine Classic, winning a pre-title needs to mean something, whereas winning, like, the 10, or winning the pricky pulley pair invite, these meets that just spring out of nowhere, that's never going to winning those races are never really going to mean that much in the grand scheme of things. But, but I mean, yeah, let's, but times do matter in track and field. You can't get away for it. So even if we reset the bar, times will become important. It's like a guy's hitting over 400 in baseball. I don't care if the baseballs are juiced. You're going to talk about it. it track and field is a sports where time matters. Robert mentioned that email. We've got like a bunch of emails this week. Hi, my name is Francois Marzetta, passionate Let's Runner for 12 years. I can even say that I learned English surfing Let's Run daily. Anyway, this guy goes on. He's starting a... People can email me email me if you're interested. He's starting a link to try to gather like data on like, what athletes are running what times in certain shoes. So it's interesting. I have another guy who emailed me, and he's all concerned about college athletics. He's like, what if you're sponsored by Under Armour? Robert, your favorite guy... At Notre Dame, guess who they're sponsored by? Under Armour. So are they going to be at a serious disadvantage for the whole NCAA season because Under Armour doesn't have a super spike? What about Sam Tanner against the Oregon Milers? Sam Tanner, that's an Adidas school. Washington versus Nike, which is Oregon. Wow, Tanner ran 334 with regular shoes. That's pretty good. And there, there also is like the issue of sort of fairness and also accessibility of sport. One of the beautiful things of track and field is you don't need that much equipment. And sure, maybe if you had the lightest spike, you were slightly advantaged to someone who didn't. But like at the high school level, there probably wasn't much difference. But now, is it going to become like a requirement? You got to show out an extra $200 to be your best? Like, just there's sort of unintended consequences of all these things. But I'm not sure we're coming back from it. By the way, Weldon sold our email or short. Francois Marzette. This guy was. Six at the World Juniors in the steeplechase. He's only 29. Shit, should I? Francois, I, I'm the world's greatest steeplechase coach. If you want to make a comeback, 
I'll coach you. What are your PRs here? Wow. I love how Robert went from he's a good coach, good collegiate coach who dominated the Ivy League on the track, but not in cross country, uh, to the world's greatest steeplechase coach because he coached a few guys to sub nine in the steeple. I, I, I'm failing to see how that qualifies you as the world's greatest steeplechase coach, Robert. It's over your head, John. It's not my fault that you can't understand it. When you get a little bit older, maybe it'll all come to you. Have you ever raced a steeplechase? There's a famous story about that. I did race one of the women's steeplechasers, Ed Cornell. I put on a woman's singlet and raced her. She thought there was no way I could beat her. I told her I definitely could beat her, and I was right. Well, congratulations, Robert. Breaking barriers. Uh, let's talk about the results of the 10, though, because you know there was a trap meet to discuss here. Mark Scott gets the win. I mean, all, all five finishes in this men's race, hit the Olympic standard, which is 27-28. It was Mark Scott, 27-10, Grant Fisher, 27-11, Woody Kincaid, 27-12, Ben True, 27-14, Kieran Tuntivate, 27-17. So there are a few storylines here, and I guess I'll let you have dealer's choice here, Robert. One is Kieran Tuntivate just made... Mark Scott wins, I guess. Two, which is number two all-time in Great Britain behind only Mo Farah. Number two is Kieran Tuntivate goes from 1357 at Harvard to now 2717 in the 10K with the Bowman Track Club. Once again, Jerry Schumacher's eye for talent is vindicated. And number three, King Chez DNF. Which one do you want to talk about there? I want to start with number three. I didn't even think you were going to remember number three. Remember when we talked about the show, it might have been on the VIP, our Friday 15 VIP. If you want to join the Let's Run Supporters Club, sign up now, let'srun.com slash subscribe. We have a bonus podcast on Fridays if there's meets to get you ready for them. I think it was on that show. I said, why is this guy even running this race? I don't understand this. He's already got the Olympic standard. What is the point of running this race? And if I had thought about it even longer, he doesn't have the super shoes. So I didn't understand why Ches would run a race unless it was going to be a sub 27 minute race. But without the super shoes, is he really capable of that? So I didn't understand why he was running to begin with. And then I thought, wow, he must really be ready to go. There's no reason to do this unless he's going to go for a fast one and try to win this race. And then he drops out with a hamstring issue. This to me was a disaster on so many levels. Terrible, terrible coaching because this guy should not have stepped the line unless he was 100% ready to go. No injury scares. And his DNF here was a big disappointment for me because when I thought, okay, he's running Scott's in it. We'll get to finally see where Chez is now. I, I didn't like this. I, I didn't like this DNF. I didn't like him starting the, 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 the even towing the starting line if there was injury there because I still I wasn't a big fan of King Ches in college because it really bothered me that he was allowed to dominate and rewrite the U.S. high school record books despite being overage. I think he's older than his listed age. That bothered me. But now I'm like rooting for Ches because I feel like he should have some sort of pro career. As much as he was used and abused by Oregon for all their glory, this guy deserves to a make a How lot of money. How was he used and abused by Oregon? Oh, come on, John. They, they, they pay everybody else to go. Nike pays every other athlete to go pro early at a high school if they can. Get Mary Kane before she even hits puberty. And that, yet they, they have King Chaz, this Kenyan. Let's keep him in Oregon so we can win Uncle Phil so many NCAA team titles. You know, how, how many can we have? I mean, I'm sure if he had a huge offer to turn pro, he would have taken it out of, you know, after his sophomore year. It's, it's what the market demands, Robert. It's supply and demand here. Also, we don't know he dropped out of this race due to injury. Now, I I asked his agent, Stephen Haas, who's also his coach, why he didn't run that prickly pair meet, and that was because they were being cautious of the tight hamstring. I don't know if that it could be related to why he dropped out. Maybe he just 
wasn't fit enough and couldn't handle the pace. I don't have a definitive explanation here, but I agree. You know, I would, I would, I would like to think if he wasn't 100 percent healthy, he wouldn't have started this race. But I'm not certain on that. So did he get dropped in the middle of the race? I didn't see this race. He, I think he was still with them for what you know. We dropped out. I'm trying to hold on. I mean, his last split was. 5,600 meters, and he was right still with the leaders. So I don't know. Maybe he just realized he couldn't handle that pace anymore. I I didn't. I don't have an actual explanation for why he didn't finish this race. I don't think the pace was too hot for him. He ran 27, 27 a few weeks, a few months ago. You know, now the fact that he's running in the cool of lane two because he doesn't have the super spikes could be an issue. Anyways, enough Cheswick talk. Mark Scott wins. I mean, not a surprise. I, I thought he would win this race. I thought he would get the standard, and he did. Um, 27.10 is a very good time in the olden days. It's number two all-time, actually, in, in British history. Um, you know, but how much are we going to add for the Super Spikes? Grant Fisher gets the standard. I think that was big for him. You know, I, I think it's going to be – There's there are only three Americans with the standard coming in. How many are there now, John? Six. So it, it ups his, his Olympic chances – Woody Kincaid, it was nice to see. He'd run the sub-13 a couple years ago, and now he's, you know, back in, in good form. But And, and Ben Troop, you know, amazing. 35-plus, big PB. I was, and But I, I want to save that for the – we're interviewing him later. You're going to hear all about that. It's an amazing interview. Please listen to that at the end. Let's talk about Kieran Tantavid. I had broadcast this guy at the Ivy League Championships. He lost his shoe, ran the entire 3,000 one time on a bloody foot and won it. The guy was kind of an Ivy League legend, but – his PR coming into this was 1357 for 5000. He had run the prickly pear invite I think a few weeks ago or a month ago or whatever it was and had run what 749 John. He was way behind those guys. Yeah, about 12 seconds off the win there. Yeah. But he stuck right with these guys and was right with them until basically the last 300 you know 2717. He's well born in the US, he competes for Thailand. His father is Thai. He lived in Thailand from age three to age 11. And this is an amazing story to me. This was where your dreams become reality. This was the Weldon Johnson story on steroids. Weldon was like a mediocre fifth placer at the Ivy League. He ran 28 flat. So I said, someone, I said, this guy running ultimately faster, you know, 27, 30 wouldn't surprise me. But 27, 14, 17 out of the gate was absolutely insane. Amazing. So he was right there to the final lap. I mean, this really is shocking because say what you want about super shoes. This guy got dusted by 12 seconds by his teammates in a 3K, what, two weeks ago? Mm-hmm. So I'm just shocked that he could run this fast. But, you know, I started doing the math. I ran 2806, dropped me in some super shoes. This guy was way better than me in college. I probably would have beaten him by a couple seconds. I was waiting for that to come. Usually Robert's the cocky one, but I was like, oh, well then, he loves these super shoe conversions because now he can say he was even better than he was back in the day. I'm pretty sure I would have had Slinsky's record. (laughs) That's what, you know, what I dream at night sometimes. I'm like, 26.58, he's done it. How fast could Slinsky have run in these things? Sub 26? (laughs) Just being silly, but. You guys want to know who the big loser of the super shoe is? There's just one guy that keeps popping in my head. Alan Webb. That record's gone. I mean, some college kid might break it indoors. The American record? I mean, I'd be surprised if 
that happened. But actually, that'd be faster than the world record, you know, for fifteen hundred. But I'm really excited to hear there's the European Championships next week. You usually don't care that much about that meet, but we had a wonderful indoor track season. Like, thank you, World Athletics. I guess now you have to say thank you, Max Siegel. Did you guys catch that on the American Track League? American Track League number four. Paul Duol did a tremendous job putting that on it. And this meet that you know you noticed there was a lot more sponsors around the track. The TV commercials, they did a good job. But Paul Swangard, and I noticed this on, I think, track meet number two, he, he mentioned Max Siegel by name at least two times, maybe three times in that broadcast. I only saw the end of this broadcast because I was doing some family stuff, and I heard him say, and thanks to Max Siegel for this. And I'm like, what did USATF do? I think they put up a little money for the broadcasting. Then I'm like, oh, Paul's the broadcaster. He got paid because of Max. But you don't hear him say, thanks to... Adam Silver for making this possible. You just, you know, the NBA is doing what it's supposed to do. USATF is doing what it's supposed to do. That's a joke. I'm glad I wasn't listening to the broadcast because we put it at the beginning of the show. Basically, every country in Europe had a US had a European Indoor Championships last week. USATF doesn't have an Indoor Championships, and yet Max Siegel's being praised on national TV, and he makes a million dollars a year. I'm sorry. Don't get me started. Robert loves to point out that Max Siegel is very highly compensated for someone who leads a nonprofit of the size of USATF. And I guess it's, it is fair to point out. But I had a couple thoughts about Max. One, did anyone, he did a video interview with Larry Eater. Now, as I look now, it has 74 views on YouTube. So I'm not sure what the hell, like, run, blog, run, where they're putting these things, like, what's going on with that. I have not watched it. It's 46 minutes long. So I'm curious. Did any of you guys watch it? No. Okay. I guess if one of the 74 people out there had, maybe I should watch it because Max never does interviews. I'd love to have Max on the podcast because the other thing I saw on the new redesigned let's run.com homepage, we still want to keep getting it better. Give us your feedback. Email us at pod at let's run.com. But there was a note that says, UCLA's new Nike contract pays less than half a prior deal with Under Armour, signaling a wider correction for NCAA apparel contracts. So it says UCLA is going to get $7.7 million a year from Nike, whereas it was getting $18.7 million from Under Armour. And essentially the one thing I see Max Siegel having done is signed a deal with USATF through, I mean, with Nike through 2040? Is that right? Yeah. I mean, he didn't bid it out, which I think is irresponsible. It's something to be said by locking down if there's a market correction. The market could go the other way. I sort of thought like, oh, wow, if the whole shoe market went this way with sponsorships, USATF might be glad to have the money. But the other thing might be that total premium brands like the Olympics and whatnot might be even more. You're seeing that with top soccer clubs like, you know, Man U, Liverpool. The top teams are getting more and the lesser schools are getting less. Just interesting thought I had there. Well, always the other point that we always make about that is how much credit do you give to, I mean, Siegel is the USATF CEO who secured it, but like, do you, how much credit do you give when it really was these two former Nike executives who were the ones who get this massive commission? They're the ones who basically negotiate the deal. You know, how, how do you break, how do you break that credit down? Yeah. I mean, the whole thing's kind of crazy. He's done some good things, but the whole Max Siegel thing is the total definition of sort of, I don't know what the proper word is, but sort of like, and I want to say this in as nice a way as possible, but sort of like insider trading or the swamp or whatnot. Max was a board member. 
And then he became head of USATF, appointed by the board. So essentially, there's no oversight. They're all friends. They're all whatever. Like, the USOPC now wants, like, more independent directors and this sort of stuff. Well, it doesn't really matter. USATF is the definition of an inside group running itself because the board has all the power. And they're and they're trying to keep, take away power from the membership. So it's just the whole thing is sort of fascinating. But, I mean, the one thing USATF has is a decent amount of money through 2040 or more than they had in the past. But any CEO should have done that, right? Let's go back to this Tontavit race and how this was possible. I've got the inside scoop. I spoke to his coach, Alex Gibby, this morning. What do you guys want to know? I mean, how do you go from being... His best finish at NCAAs was 28th in cross country. How do you go from that to 27, 17, and 13, 15 months? Okay. First of all, um, when I talked to Alex, I said, Alex, what would he have run last year? Because I thought he was really good Ivy League. I'm like, what would he run? He's like, I would say 1330. He's like at least 1330. He's like, he would have run 1330 the first time out when he did ran the 5,000 last year, if you know, if they hadn't canceled the season, he's like, and, and this was a great analogy. He's like, look, I coach Ed Moran at William and Mary. Ed ran 1325 at William Mary. He's like, he's better than Ed Moran. So, you know, he's like, it's not, a, it wasn't a shock to me that, you know, he's like, I thought going in, he's like, when, so after, the season's canceled, and Tontavit originally, I think, was going to go to Texas for an extra year, but then Tom Ratcliffe, the agent, Brown alumnus, had, had noticed Tontavit at the Ivy League Championships. He's really tight with Jerry Schumacher. He recommends him. Jerry calls Gibby. Gibby said, yeah, I told him he's better than Moran. I told him I thought he could run 13 flat in 2730. He's like, obviously, he's ahead of that right now. Um, but, you know, Gibby said, like, that he had some glute problems in college, and that they were sort of always worried about a work stoppage, meaning he was worried that he was going to get hurt, so he held him back. He's like, I didn't train him as hard as I trained Ed Moran. Um, he's like, instead of hitting a double off the wall, we were consistently hitting a lot of singles. So a little bit under-trained, but he thought he would be good for Jerry because they do a lot of long threshold work at Harvard, a lot of quality volume. So the, the, the workouts were similar. And, you know, it's amazing. I mean, he's, he's done well. But I asked Gibby, I said, hey, you've got experience with these shoes now. How much are they worth? And he said, three to four seconds a mile. And he's like, for the 10K, I'd say 15 to 25 seconds. Well, I do think Jerry's system, that's one of those that if you if you have the requisite talent, you can just, your body, I guess this isn't really, I'm not really providing any deep insight here, but if your body can sort of survive it, you're going to make big breakthroughs. And that sounds like there was the question for him coming out of college. And so far he has survived it. And if you hang with these guys in training, you are going to run some pretty fast times. Sometimes it takes a year for athletes to get adjusted, but he's only been there about what, six months or so. And he's already running 27, 17. Yeah. Well, Gibby thought that the adjustment wouldn't be that big because they're doing similar training. He said he was running 85 to 90 in his low weeks at Harvard. 95 to 100 on the high weeks. Hey guys, there's two last things I want to say about Tuntavet. Try to be quick because I'm sure I'm going to get emails complaining that we're devoting the whole podcast to the fourth and fifth place finishers in this 10,000 just because they went to the Ivy League. But one thing that, that was interesting to me that Alex Gibby pointed out was he said, look, Tuntavet is a, because there was a big threat on Let's Run. How did this guy even get in the Bowerman Track Club? And one thing that Gibby talked about was like, He's very appealing to the Bowman Truck Club because he's not American. 
While he's an American citizen, he runs for Thailand. He actually was this Thailand sports personality of the year last year. So, but you don't want to have, even if there's several other Americans, just as good as a ton of it you could put in the group, you don't want to have five or six guys, five or six alphas all in the same event group training together. It's just too hard to manage those egos. They're all competing for the same three spots. But if you have a couple other guys from other countries, you can have the synergy of the team. You can have other guys helping each other in the, in, in the workouts, but you don't have the negativity of you know six guys realizing there's only three spots because they can all go to the Olympics. So it, it was an interesting point about you know how many American alpha. You only want to have a certain number of American alphas in the team, but you can have as many you know from other countries um, as you want. Well, that's interesting point, point, Robert, because who else joined at the same time as Tantevit? Amos Bartelsmeyer, former Georgetown runner. He represents Germany. And Gabrielle Debus-Stafford comes in from Canada. Now, obviously, we've got Sinclair Johnson as well. It's not like they're totally ignoring Americans, but that is an interesting point. Why don't Bowerman or Zombie NLP... Hello, we have a lot of runners in Ethiopia and we have a lot of runners in Kenya. That's where the top runners in the world generally are, and Uganda. Why can't we take a runner from Africa and put him on these teams? And we saw with Sifan Hassan what happened, but it's always a European athlete... We're now an Asian athlete. Uh, I just feel like, I don't know, do they think they'd be almost too good? I, I mean, I, I don't even, I'm, but I'm just, if, if we're going for diversity in terms of talent throughout the world, the biggest talent is in Africa. I'm just surprised you don't go there. Well, I don't think that's their whole goal. Their goal isn't we want the fastest possible runners from the entire world. I mean, the, the original Oregon project was started with the goal of making Americans the top. So Bauman Track Club, I don't think it excites Jerry Schumacher to take very, very good, you know, Kenyans or Ethiopians or whatever and making them the best in the world. I think he'd like, he's American. I'm sure he wants Americans to do well. Uh, and I agree with Weldon, though. It's an interesting thought. I mean, you did have Kajelcha join the NOP. Mo Farah, famously African-born, was the star- biggest star ever in the NOP. But, you know, it's like, it always amazes me, these people like Mark Wetmore, the Colorado coach, or, or Jerry, too. Although Jerry's worked with um, the Canadian guy that was born in Africa. Are you talking about Simon Baru, who was not born in Africa, but born in Saudi Arabia? Mohamed. I mean, Mohamed. Oh, Mohamed. Okay. So, He's I mean, just... <laughs> okay. I'm not saying where they're born. I guess what countries they represent. And you pointed out Kajelcha is Ethiopia. But that's the one guy. And but but also you were saying that the fact that they're not an American now is a it's a like it attracts them to the group. It's a positive for Jerry and them. Then I'm like, wait, well, why wouldn't you just go get a guy from Kenya or Ethiopia? But I don't know if there's a business side. You know, like how many shoes are sold in Kenya and Ethiopia versus Canada, UK, Thailand's not that big of a country, right? But that would be interesting to me, Weldon. For two things. One, if you bring over a star from Africa, I think they're going to dominate the group and it's going to be demoralizing to the group because then Mohamed and Woody Kincaid and these guys are going to stop thinking that they could possibly win Olympic gold because if you, if you give the superior talents the better coaching, they're going to dominate. And two, that's a very interesting pot. I didn't think about that. Would Nike rather have their Western athletes win the gold medals because they sell more shoes in America than they do? You know, How many people in Ethiopia can even afford these shoes? Not very many. Well, you guys are also assuming these the Africans are going to want to uproot their systems. Like someone like Joshua Cheptegei, why in the world would he want to come out and train over here? He's already got a fantastic training setup. Some of the like Kajelcha ended up coming to Oregon, I think, because he wasn't happy with his setup. But like 
Guys like Borrega, I mean, he's doing pretty well. Like Camerol, all those guys. It's not like there's nowhere to trade in Africa. They all have, uh, a lot of these guys have pretty good setups anyway. And then coming out to the West Coast of America, you're 6,000 miles away from your family, probably more than that. And you maybe don't speak the language. What's the appeal to them when you're doing pretty well already in Kenya or Ethiopia or Uganda? John, you got a good point, actually, because a lot of it probably is the athletes express interest first. And if you think about it, athletes from more Western countries are probably more likely to say, hey, yeah, I want to go live in Portland, Oregon for most of the year, or the United States for the most year and train, whereas a lot of African athletes might like their setup and want to stay there. But I'm not suggesting that Josh, you have to get Joshua Chepta guy, the world record holder. I'd be curious if you just went and got some like rando 1320 guy from Ugandan put him over. Some guy like that, just for that money aspect, might do it. And I want to make a correction. Do you guys know how many people live in Thailand? I actually don't know what I was thinking. Like, Bangkok's a big city. 100 million. Yeah, 70 million. One other guy noted here, Paul Tanui, multi-time world championship medalist. He was the silver medalist at the 2016 Olympics. He trains in Pete Julian's group, and he might not even, I mean, may, we'll see how he does this year, but I don't think, I didn't hear anyone complaining, oh my God, Pete Julian now has Paul Tanui. This is unfair. This is game over. I, I just don't, I think maybe you're overrating a little bit the, the impact of the coaching, Robert. When did Tanui join the group? Last year, I think. Maybe maybe before that. But I think it was, no, I think it was last year after the Salazar ban. We haven't even talked about the women's ten yet, but one last thing, somewhat related to Tanfa, but not really. When now Gibby was talking about Dobson, I was like, yo, God, I forgot he ran 13.25 in college. I'm like, what did he get at NCAs? He's like, go back and look up the 2005 NCA 5,000 meter results. That may be the greatest NCA 5,000 ever. You mean Ed Moran, Robert, right? Yeah. What did I say? You said Dobson. Excuse me. Ed Moran. Ed Moran ran 13.46 at NCAs. He got seventh. The winner of that race in 2005 was Ryan Hall. It was like a scorcher. It was like 85 degrees on the track. He runs 13.22 in the heat, beats Ian Dobson. They both run 13.22. Nick Willis, Hall would run 13.16 that year. Dobson would run 13.15 that year. Nick Willis, who ran 3.32 that year, was third in 13.27. Brent Vaughn, fourth. Matt Tegenkamp, fifth. Robert Chesra, the defending champion, who had wiped the four of Nathan Ritzenheim the year before, was sixth. Admiran, seventh. And the guy scoring one point, was only someone by the name of Chris Solinsky. And then you've got a future NCAA 10K champion, Cedric Sangok, in, in, in um, ninth, and a guy that ran 13-14 and 27-30, and Kevin Chalimo in 10th, and then actually the agent now, Stephen Haas, in 11th. What a sick, sick 5,000-meter race. Kevin Chalimo, was that... Am I making this up? Is that Sally Kipiego's husband? Isn't that his name? What school did he run for, Robert? Texas Tech. Yes, that was... One and the same. So yeah, wow, that is quite a historic race there. All right, let's move on to this women's race because to me, this was just as interesting in terms of some of the results we got. We got five women under the standards, Olympic standard here, which was Elise Cranny, Krista Schweizer, Eilish McColgan, Emily Infeld. That was a PR for Emily Infeld, 31.08 and fourth. Marielle Hall, fifth. And then Sch- Cranny and Schweizer, 30-47, both of them ran Cranny out kicking Schweizer at the very end. They go to number three and number four all-time in the United States. And it's very interesting to me because I kind of assumed going in, Schweizer's going to dominate this, or she will at least win. Like, go with a, li- a mile to go, I was like, all right, look, how does Carissa Schweizer, she's run 14-26, 
She's the American record holder in the 3K indoors. She only barely beat Cranny a couple weeks ago, that prickly pear meet. But like looking at their skill set, Cranny was a miler in college. Schweizer was a 5K. She was an NCAA cross-country champion. Like, But Cranny, she pulls the upset here. And now I'm thinking, all right, what's the Olympic team going to look like now? Because Cranny, who I don't think anyone would have pegged her as a 10K contender... Now is suddenly the third fastest woman in American history. She beat Schweizer. I just found it very, fa- very interesting results. But does this change how you view Cranny or Schweizer or the Olympic 10K picture, guys? Yes. I mean, I viewed Schweizer as a lock for whatever she wanted, and I no longer view her as that. And it's just great for at least Cranny. I mean, super talented high school star, right? Wasn't it? Who, who were the? It was Kane, Cranny, and who else, John? I mean, we had we had three or four of them together. Ephraimson, yeah. Elise Cranny was fourth, I believe, at World Juniors in 2014, which is in the 1500, which is the same year that Mary Kane won the 3000. So high school star, pretty good in college. Never won an NCAA title though, right? Correct. Almost almost won one early in her career, but then was sort of like 11th in cross country as a senior, fifth year senior. And then you're like, is she even going to run pro? But Jerry has faith in her. She had a 1525 PB in the 5,000, and now she's running 3047 for 10,000. It's pretty darn good. And it shows you, you don't have to, I, I don't know, I, this, this is an encouraging story for high school girls. Sometimes you can sort of plateau for a little bit, but still have more in the tank later in life. You've got you've to you've get through the tough times. So just a, a really great run for her. I mean, I was kind of two laps ago. I'm like, does anyone really think Cranny's going to outkick Schweizer? And then I felt like an idiot when she did do it. So congrats to her. And let's just look at the landscape right now in the women's 10,000 meters in the United States, because this is the first final on the track of the 2021 Olympic trial, 6.22 PM Pacific time on June 18th. Final event of day one. We've got Cranny. We've got Schweizer. We've got Molly Huddle and Emily Sisson coming back, trying to make the team after failing to make the marathon team in Atlanta. They've all run under 31 minutes in the last two years. We've got Marielle Hall, who beat Huddle at the 2019 World Championships. She was the top American in that race. We've got Infeld, who medaled in 2015 at the World Championships in this race. We've got Rachel Schneider, who ran 31.09 back in the track meet in December. That was pretty impressive. Kaylin Taylor, she was third at USA's in 2019. Almost made the team. She didn't have the standard. And then we've got Sarah Hall and Kira D'Amato, the mothers, who have been on fire in 2020 in the marathon, and they didn't make the marathon team either. They're going to try to make the team. There's so many storylines here. How do you... Do you guys have a top three? Who do you think is making this team if you had to pick it right now? Oh, yeah, and one more name. Shelby Houlihan. Just throwing it out there. It's not inconceivable that she could run a 10K, get the standard to run this, though I don't think that's probably going to happen. Well, well, I can't believe we're actually talking about Olympic trials. My mom's trying to plan a summer vacation for the family, John, and I checked the date, and it would end on, what day did you say, Dan? June 18th. June 18th. And I was like, wait, the trials might be that soon. It's sort of crazy. My mom's got that vaccine. She's going crazy, you know? But, like, people are starting to think about stuff that isn't that far out, so hopefully we can have fans there. But this 10K is loaded. Man, what, usually I think of the big names, right? So then... Uh, I would probably go Sisson. This run by Cranny was pretty good. So I'm going to put Cranny on the team. Do you leave Huddle off? 
I mean, this is crazy, right? Huddles with Saucony, right? A Saucony ain't going to have a shoe. She's not even a responder to the shoe. This is easy, Weldon. You go with Cranny, you go with Schweizer, and you go with Sisson. That's the three that I would pick right now. It's hard to imagine Emily, Molly Huddle doesn't make it. Maybe infield replaces either Cranny or Schweizer, but Huddle doesn't have a super shoe, and A, she, B, she doesn't respond to the super shoes. I would love to see the moms make it, but I just don't, I think that they don't have much of a chance. The only other wild card to me is Rachel Snyder. She, did she run that time not in the super shoe because she was Under Armour? If she somehow could get a super shoe, maybe she could make it, but I don't think so. How does a 14-20? Schweizer has not impressed me indoors, but I, I think she's obviously in the 14-20s. Who's your team again, Robert? Cranny, Schweizer, and Sisson. Oh. I think that's my team as well. John? I think Schweizer is the one I feel most confident about. I think right now, I don't think Carissa Schweizer is at the same level she was in 2020, and she's still very, very good. So I think if she can just sort of refine her mojo a little bit, I, I feel very confident in her making that team if she chooses to run it. I d- really am excited to see... You guys are just ignoring Emily Infeld here. I know she got she was 20 seconds back here, but... If she and this is the big thing with her, if she can stay healthy, but she's had so many injury setbacks even into this race. She wasn't like a hundred percent, you know. Not everything had gone totally smoothly. If she can get four quality months between now and the trials, I mean, she makes teams. She, you know, bronze medal at Worlds in twenty fifteen. She made the Olympics in 2016, 2017, She beat Molly Hoddle was the top American at Worlds. So I'm pretty excited to see what she can do. But I got to say, I think, I think Schweizer. I think probably Cranny, just based on that result. I mean, that was pretty damn impressive. And then it's really hard for me to leave Molly Huddle on this team, but I, I don't know. I do think if she, it's really what she does over the next four months. I mean, she needs to do some serious work to close that gap. I read an interview with her in Fast Woman, and she just was like, she, I don't think she seemed she knew that she's got a lot of work to do over the next four months. I kind of want to bank on Molly Huddle. I mean, she is the five-time defending champion. She is the American record holder. But there's so much talent around her. But I, you know what? I I believe in Jenny Simpson, the 15. I'm going to believe in Molly Huddle in the 10K. I'm going to say Schweizer, Cranny, and Molly Huddle is your Olympic team in the women's 10,000. Well, then, well, I just have to tell John I told you so when Simpson wipes the floor of Huddle. It's hard to say it, but father time, mother time is undefeated. So now we have to say mother time, even though the normal saying is father time, but a woman can be a boat. Although the preacher, well, she was like the assistant preacher at my church. She loved to say, God isn't a man. It's not a woman. So we shouldn't use he. That actually made some sense to me. But friend of the podcast, Des Linden, Robert, she's taken your job. She's gotten on the announcing crew for NBC and I heard her talk about guys on the, one of the broadcasts. I need to find the audio of that. She's like, these guys, and it was a girl's race. So, Robert, stop telling us what words we can and cannot use. Okay, couple quick things to address before we go. I mean, Robert, you brought this up in the intro about Sebco's British 800 record going down. This was last week right after we recorded Elliot Giles ran 143 in Torin, Poland, which is where the... European Championships will be next week. And then Jamie Webb, second, 144-54. Uh, 
Giles had the Nike Super Spikes, 143.63. Jamie Webb was running in sort of the old Adidas shoes. Is there anything we wanted to add on that? I mean, look, Elliot Giles has been running really good this year. I think you can't just say, oh, it was all just the shoes. Like, he's he's made some serious improvements, and I was very impressed by this run. Obviously, it's very fast. And Jamie Webb, that's a good run for him as well. I mean, do we have anything else to say on that, or you just wanted to bring that up in the intro because you thought it was interesting? I just thought it was interesting, mainly because of the shoes. And, and the thing that's interesting to me is this quote from Nick Willis. I mean, for years, athletes have been asked to say something nice about their sponsors, and they sort of say something that's disingenuous. And now the shoes are actually a huge part of their success, and the athletes are sort of denying it. Here's the quote from Nick Willis. Normally, you're asked by your sponsor to give a sales pitch. And it often seems so fake and contrived. And here's your one opportunity to really preach about it, yet they don't. Great quote by Nick. So... That's all I want to say about the shoes because Ben True is going to say more than I need to say in just a few minutes. Well, that's uh, Jamie Webb has gotten ahead of this, Robert. He's admitted, look, I've tried out the Adidas Super Spikes. They're going to have them, hopefully, you know, that he expects to have them in a couple months. And he's already said this was a great editorial he wrote in the Times, which I urge you guys to read. And he was very level-headed about it. He said, if I do run fast in the summer, I'll be only too happy to recognize the role my new Adidas Spikes have played even if it would have also taken a lot of hard work, not to mention a bit of talent. I think that's all we're looking for athletes to acknowledge. Like, we're not saying they didn't work hard and then they're not talented, but obviously they play a role. So I applaud the stance that Jamie Webb took on on that topic. Okay, before we get to Ben Trier, we need to talk about the collegiate debut last week of the arguably the greatest high school women's, or definitely the greatest women's high school cross-country runner in history. Right, John? That's a fair way to describe her. I would call her that. I mean, Melody Fairchild won a couple of footlockers back to back, and I think she still has the course record there. So that's she's in contention. But I, I, I think it's Caitlin Tui. The greatest what? High school girls cross country runner in U.S. history. Anyway, she made her debut last week for NC State, and there was some good and there was some bad. And what I really liked about this was NC State sort of quietly opened her up on, on Friday night in the DMR. No one knew she was going to run the DMR. Everyone knew she was running the 3,000. I think she split about 325, handed off in second place, get her feet wet in collegiate competition. She comes back the next day on a flat track and finishes next to last in the 3,000. 919, not a great time, sort of on the borderline of NCAAs. Her PR is 901. Um... For me, the positives were she's competing. She was hurt in the fall. That's good. I like how they're sort of lowering expectations, just getting out there. The other thing is she's really enjoying college. This could be an Elise Cranny situation where she doesn't do anything that amazing, but maybe still keeps going and eventually finds her footing because 919 is not good. And there was a fascinating post on the message board by, I think it might have been the, uh, I wish I, I knew who, 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 who came up with it. Could be the totally running guy. I'm not sure, though. Anyways, they had a, link, a, a list of Tui's splits. Her 325 split is actually very similar to what she ran as a freshman girl in high school. So she's actually not even that much more fit than she was as a freshman in high school. But I'm excited that she's competing. She's healthy. And perhaps more importantly, she seems to be enjoying college. I've seen some YouTube videos. Let her be a college student. Let's don't put too much pressure on her and see if she can. I, I just I don't like hyping up these young teenage women. 
Well, yeah, I think the health issue is a big one because she's had a knee, knee injury. It's, she's being pretty guarded about how serious this injury has been, but it, it seemed like, you know, 2020, her senior year, I mean, granted, they wouldn't have competitions due to COVID, but it didn't seem like she was 100% healthy there. We don't know how long it will take her to get back to, you know, 100% health, but the fact that she's out there racing is good. I don't think, I think NC State has been handling this well. It doesn't seem like they've been putting a lot of pressure on her. So hopefully if she gets a consistent block of training and she's able to stay healthy the rest of the year, you know, maybe she becomes a factor next year or something like that. But yeah, 919, I don't know. Based on knowing that she was coming off injury, that's around where I expected. I didn't expect the 901 Caitlin Tui based on the health issues she's had. Yeah, I'm surprised you guys even got excited about this debut. I expected nothing. One, I'm glad the expectations have been lowered. Not that I would want anyone to be hurt, but in some ways she had kind of, her performances had dropped the last couple of years. She's been injured. And so in some ways, almost having an injury mentally, maybe it can help her not set these artificial expectations. She just needs to do the best she can do. Hopefully improve, enjoy college. I mean, she's getting a free college education because of running. Like that's pretty good. I, I didn't expect anything much more than this or much worse this is sort of kind of what i expected guys do you want to have a little pick me up you guys want to hear some good news but john there's a caveat here this week could be in the covid segment of the week so i don't know john if you hate hearing covid talk well if it's good news just make it make it quick and then we'll get to the ben true because this is getting pretty long at this point weldon a study came out i believe last week the effect of NFL and NCAA football games on the spread of COVID-19 in the United States, an empirical analysis. Before I make any grand conclusions to this, remember I'm not a scientist. This is in preprint, whatever that means, so it's far from concluded, but they looked at you know, counties and places in the United States that had attendance for NFL football and college games. I assume the Dallas Cowboys who led the NFL in the tenants this year, as I've pointed out a couple times in this podcast. Only thing we lead the NFL in. But this study concludes, our study does not find an increase in county-level COVID-19 cases per 100,000 residents due to NFL and NCAA football games held with limited in-person attendance. So, Tracktown USA, get on it. There's hope for fans at the Olympic trials. You know, hopefully this study is, you know, validated in all aspects and the science can show that there can be fans at the Olympic trials. Well, I hope we're in a place in this country four months from now where there are many people with the vaccine and that we do have fans because the Olympic trials, that is one of the events I just don't think would be the same without the fans. It's one of the only track meets where you do get a huge fan interest in this country. And I promised on this very podcast last week that I would write that my article, my editorial, urging USATF to have a 100% capacity. I was going to base it on science. I still haven't published it, but it will be coming out soon. But up next... A fantastic interview with Ben True. Find out how this part-time runner who almost beat Galen Rupp in high school is now still grinding it out, unsponsored, paying over $20,000 a year to try to make his first Olympic team. All right, let's welcome on our guest. It is Ben True. He is quite accomplished, age of 35 now. Two-time footlocker finalist as a part-time runner in high school a three-time HEPS cross-country champion as a part-time runner at Dartmouth College. And he's made two world championship teams on the track at the senior level with a best finish of sixth in the 5,000 meters at the 2015 World Champs. Perhaps most famously, 
He finished sixth at the 2013 World Cross Country Championships in Poland to lead Team USA to a silver medal, its highest team finish since 1984, known famously on Let's Run.com as the Miracle on Dirt. Most recently, at the age of 35, Ben just ran a 27-second PB of 27.14 for the 10,000 meters at Calif- in California. He is now number eight on the all-time U.S. list at that distance. Ben True, thanks for joining us on the Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, Ben, it's great to have you on. Um, I'm known sort of as a shoe cynic, I think. But before I... We're going uh, straight there, Robert? Come yeah, on. we're going right there, right? Yeah. <laughs> before I got to the shows, and also it's taken me about 10 years to get over my post-coaching uh, I mean, you you made my life hell as a part-time runner in the Ivy League when I was coaching at Cornell. But um, you were amazingly good, and, and it's really cool, to, you know, to for me to see you become a full-time runner and see how far that's taken you. Because, I mean, you showed glimpses of, of talent in college, but it's kind of amazing. I mean, you were two years out as a pro, and you were like a 340, 1340 guy. And then here you are almost 15 years later still grinding away. So I'm going to start with praise. Not from me, from a poster on the message board called Old Runners. Last night he wrote, Ben True running sub-28. I think that's actually, they should say almost sub-27. At age 35, after 10 plus years as a pro, give him props for still grinding at 35. Give him props for showing up at the start line with no sponsor. And when his mid-30s counterparts have retired and moved on to other things, give him props for doing all of this solo, not at altitude, without a YouTube channel, Unlike all of the groups out there, he's the guy that comes out of the boonies from somewhere in New England, in a, somewhere in the New England forest, and kicks your ass in a race at age 35. Give some respect to this dude instead of devaluating devaluating his accomplishments. I guess they were mad at me already for asking about the shoes. <laughs> he would have run sub 28 even in the normal spikes. I have no doubt, Ben, you would have run sub 28, but. Um, what do you think about that race, you know, last weekend? I mean, it was amazing. It was a huge PR. Were you expecting it? What were the expectations going into the race? Yeah. Um, so I will say I finally do have a training partner. So after it's been six years since my last training partner of Sam Chalanga, uh, who uh, we trained together in 2014. Um, and then since then, I've been solo. And just this past fall, I got a new training partner, Dan Kurtz, um, fellow Mainer, uh, ran at Iowa State. Um, so it's been great having somebody to run with again. Um, so it's uh, definitely made things a lot easier for me this year so far. Um, but yeah, th- no, um, I mean, the, the goal of this, this race was to run the standard, uh, the Olympic standard, uh, which was 27.25 or 27.28, somewhere around there. Um, and I knew I was fit. Um, I knew that that was a, definitely a possibility to do it. And I knew that if this was a Bowerman time trial, basically that Jerry put on, that it was going to be a nice Evie gravy train to hop on and it'd be the best opportunity to run fast. Um, it's great that I got, was able to get a PR. Uh, I will say before going into anything with the shoes that, I have never run a fast 10K on the track where we went out faster than 14 minutes through the first 5K. So I don't think I've ever given myself a good shot of running a fast uh, 10K before. Um, And this is the first time I've ever had a shot of running a a good 10K. So um, there's that aspect of it as well that's definitely helped in why I wanted to run this particular race. 
Yeah, I was. I mean, I was looking at that actually. Your results, and it, I mean, it, it totally backs it up. Like you haven't done as many ten like as many ten k's as I think people would expect. Um, you lost one. You ran one twenty nineteen, but then before that, it wasn't. It was the last one was twenty sixteen, and that was at the Olympic trials in the you know miserable heat uh, in Eugene. So I'm curious, like, is that when we talked about the ten k? I think when you made the team in twenty fifteen, you opted to just do the five k in Beijing. Do you like the 10K now? Because back then you were basically like, oh, I like the 5K. I kind of hate the 10K. I just run it because I'm good at it. Like, have your thoughts changed on the 10K as a distance? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't like the 10K. Um, I've never been able to really figure it out on the track. Um, the 10K distance on the road is something I've run um, pretty well at before. I've, I've notched a few 28, sub-28 minute 10Ks on the road. Um and that distance seemed to be fine but for some reason running 25 laps of the track just is mind-numbing to me um but uh i was able to put it together this time which was nice it made it very easy just to uh nestle in with the barman guys and and get towed along um i don't know what that means in 10k in the future i think um all the strength building that i've done over the years is only helping over those longer distance races. Um, so I probably am stronger now than I was, you know, in 2014, 2015, when I was also running 10 Ks. Um, so I think that's just, is helping. But I guess like, you know, 27 second PR, that usually doesn't happen for anyone this deep into their career. How much of that do you attribute to, this was a great opportunity, you know, it was perfectly paced, all that stuff. How much do you attribute it to, you are fitter or do you think you are fitter and how much do you think it's these new, you know, that you race in the dragonflies and you have said you believe they have an effect. What's, you know, how do you apportion that, uh, improvement? Yeah. Um, all right. So we'll, we'll go in that order. Um, I think I, I think I'm fitter now than I have been in a very long time. Um, I definitely have been doing much more, um, better strength training than I have now. Um, I haven't raced in, it was the first race since Doha. Um, so it's been a year and a half that I haven't raced. And, um, throughout that I was running a hundred to 110 miles a week, every week. Um, and so I think if you looked at my last 365 days or, you know, last 52 weeks, I think I averaged something like. 98 miles a week, um, including like days off and, you know, down periods and stuff like that. So this is the biggest block of uninterrupted training I've ever done, which has helped. Um, I think having a training partner for the first time in over six years has definitely helped. Um, for the last three or four years, I've been very mentally burned out and, um, I'd show up at a track and I wouldn't necessarily be able to do the workout that I needed to do because the grind of doing everything solo Nobody at the track with me is just me out there. Terrible weather day, trying to do a really hard, fast workout. Really wears on you after doing that for year after year after year. And so it's, I definitely was contemplating retiring, handing up the spikes, uh, because I, it just wasn't fun for me anymore. Um, but now having a training partner again has really sparked that, you know, interest and love back of the running and, has really helped me hit workouts that I haven't been able to do previously um, just because there's somebody else there at the track. Um, and even though Dan won't do hundred percent of my workouts, just having somebody there 
um, definitely helps a huge amount. And so both physically and mentally, I think I'm better off than I have been in many, many years. As for the shoes, um, so let's let's split the two the two types of these new magic shoes. And and granted, I haven't been able to run in everybody's magic shoes. Um, I've run in the Saucony Endorphin Pros, which is their carbon plated shoe. Um, I've run in their prototype spike carbon spike um, that isn't uh, World Athletics compliant because their stack was actually a little bit too high, the prototype that I used, because originally World Athletics said under 30 millimeters for the stack height, and then they changed it to 25. And Saucony, by the time I had the prototypes, they hadn't been able to change it yet, so it was still too big. Um, and then I've run in the Dragonflies. I will say, without a doubt, the carbon-plated road shoes are faster. I think objectively, there's nothing you can say that those aren't faster than traditional flats. Um, I think you put those shoes on and that first run you put them on, it feels like pogo sticks. Um, you really feel that energy return. There's a lot of people who are responders and non-responders um, and depending on your stride. And so some people see massive improvements, other people see little to none improvements, but on a whole, they are without a doubt faster than traditional um, flats. Then the spikes, I'm not sure the spikes are the same. Now I do think the spikes help and they definitely are faster, but I think they're faster for a different reason. Um, the shoes, you can actually feel a spring motion to, you really feel the shoes giving your energy back and springing you forward. The spikes feel more like a very soft uh, racing flat of, of olden days. Um, and I think the biggest impact that they have is your legs just don't get beat up in, in the middle of the race. And so you're 8K into a 10K and the old spikes where basically the philosophy was get them as light as you possibly can my feet would be killing me at 8K and a, and a 10K. My calves would be rock solid and sore. You know, usually after one of those races, I wouldn't be able to walk because my ankles and my Achilles would be so blown out. With these new spikes, they're just absorbing a lot more of that load and your legs don't have that same fatigue in them. And so I think because of that, you're able to run a little bit faster. You're able to go more towards your cardiovascular limit than what your musculoskeletal system is breaking down. And I think even more so is you're able to recover faster between workouts if you wear them in workouts and between races. And so you're able to absorb that load faster and you're able to stack races together or bigger workouts together that you weren't able to do before because of the pounding on the track just were taking too much out of you. Um, and you had to take things easy to recover that aspect where now you don't have to do it as much. Wow. Throwing a time on that, I have no idea. Um, but they're, they're definitely the whole system of the carbon plated shoes and for road and the new spikes with a soccer foam are going to be game changer, not only for running for racing, but definitely for the training so that people can train better to race. 
Yeah. So you just listed, I mean, you listed a few things why you ran so fast. And that's one of them. You're healthy. You've had this huge uninterrupted training block. And then you're leading into this race. We've, we know the race conditions are great. And then we have the shoes. Like, But a lot of things people you know, I've seen on social media and certainly on our message boards, they kind of ignore the first two and just be like, well, they've all, everyone's got the super shoes. None of this counts, you know, whatever. How, as an athlete, when you know you've put in the work and you've done a lot of things right, how does that make you feel when some people just sort of minimize the accomplishments because of the shoes? I mean, you're always going to have naysayers, right? Um, and unless people are running in the shoes themselves and doing the work themselves, they're never going to appreciate what's behind the scenes, right? All they care about is, is what they see in the result. Um, so you really can't look too much into that. You, you have to be confident and secure enough in yourself that, hey, you put in a bunch of work. And yeah, times probably don't matter anymore, especially on the roads. We've seen that objectively over the last few years that times don't matter in the, anymore. The times now on the tracks are all getting faster. Right now, I think it's too early to put all the times uh, onto the spike because we've just gone through a global pandemic where everybody's training differently than they normally do, right? Everybody normally races a whole lot more. Now they're going long stretches without racing. And so I think people are actually trained better now. I think it's both, right? But which one is the biggest tipping point? I think we will find out shortly. Um, but it's, I think it's too hard to say that it's strictly all the spikes. Um, I think the spikes, the new spikes, do play a part in it, though. Um, for example, if I were to run in the old Saucony uh, spikes that I've run 10Ks in before, where they are something like 2.8 ounces they're very they're basically socks with a spike plate on them i probably could run very close to what i did but i would be absolutely destroyed afterwards and i would not have been able to do any workouts leading into that race in those spikes um, because otherwise my legs would have been trashed um, so would a pair of flats that were um, similarly soft and comfortable be as fast that then throw a spike plate on it. I don't know. I've never run in those before, um, but it, it definitely the new spikes save the legs um, from just all that massive pounding. So how much do you write? How much do you work out in spikes now versus how much you used to? Um, I will do most track workouts in spikes now whereas before i would basically only race in spikes wow um and so i think that helps because now i can do track workouts slight a little bit faster right i think it's the same effort but i'm going a little bit faster just because i'm wearing a spike as opposed to wearing a flat um but before i would only work out in in flats what about wearing the super road shoes and track workouts or is that too hard of a turn? So, and wh where do you work out in the winter? Do you get access to the Dartmouth track, or how does that work? No, so I'm currently actually in Charlottesville, Virginia, and then training there. And so it's, I mean, they've had snow this year. Um, they say it's like the snowiest winter ever, uh, but we've been able to get onto high school track here, which is nice. Um, so Saucony makes a the endorphin speed or speeds 
which are basically the super shoes, but without the carbon plate in them. Um, so it's just basically the foam, the the fast foam. Uh, I think the Nike has a new one. What's it? Their the anti-injury shoe, basically. I forget. It's a new marketing one that they're doing. Um, and I do a lot of my workouts in those. Um, I think having the carbon plate when you're doing workouts is bad, um, personally. Um, I think it just, I've tweaked my hamstring too many times by doing one-off workouts in the, the um, plated um, training shoes. Um, that I won't touch them for, for workouts. Um, so I'll, I'll run in the, the speeds instead, um, for workouts. And I will say that I feel like even those help, um, the difference between running, say a eight mile tempo on the roads, um, two years ago at, you know, I, I, I usually do, um, right across the river from Dartmouth, uh, route five is, is my tempo loop and using the old flats, my legs would be very beat up after that tempo run. Now they aren't. And I feel like I can definitely maintain a higher cadence and a faster turnover for the entire tempo at the same like heart rate and effort level, um, with the new shoes. Um, so I do feel like they're faster, even without the carbon plate, just having that foam. Um, but the biggest thing is the legs just don't feel beat up the same way. And I think you're able to tax more your cardio's vascular system, um, which is something that runners traditionally haven't been able to do as much because the musculoskeletal system breaks down so much faster. So you're in an interesting spot right now, Ben, in that you are currently without a sponsor. And we've got the Olympic trials uh, now less than four months away. And... There are only a couple companies right now that have these sort of super spikes on the track. Nike's one of them. New Balance. I don't even know if New Balance has like a 10K type spike. I know they have it sort of for the milers. But, you know, how actively are you pursuing a new sponsor? Like, do you think, do you really want to get one before the trials? Or are you thinking, hey, if the other companies don't have something to go up against the super spikes, I'm in a disadvantage here. How are you approaching that whole situation? That's a great question. Uh, right now, I would take any offer or at least, you know, think about any offer that, that is presented towards to me. Um, we're definitely been searching for, you know, possible companies that would want to work with me. Um, I think that most of the companies will have a comparable shoe by the trials. Um, I know like Adidas has one in the works, New Balance, Nike. Saucony has the prototype. I don't know how far along that is now, but it definitely was pretty close, you know, a few months ago. Uh, and I'm sure that all the other companies will be, you know, something there. Um, that being said, I think it would have to be, I wouldn't sign with anybody before using their equipment, right? I believe that if I'm representing a company, I want to fully endorse the products that they offer. And if I don't fully endorse the products that they offer, then I don't want to represent that company because that's not a truthful statement. Um, so uh, I would need to make sure that, you know, the racing shoes, both spikes and road shoes are on a level that is competitive with other ones on the market. And last year they weren't, every company was basically behind Nike. Um, 
And even two years ago, when they, the Nike first rolled them out uh, for Doha, um, I think every company was behind. Uh, I think now uh, many companies are going to be at least somewhat on the same playing field for the trials. Oh, these, these answers have been great. It's really well thought out. Um, what? Let's adopt with education for you. Right? <laughs> you know, you, you talked earlier about you were burned out. You weren't sure if you wanted to do it anymore. Now you're running times of your life. Do you, are you all in just for 2021? What got you back into it besides the having more? Is it the goal of the one thing missing is the Olympic? You don't, you've never made an Olympic team. Is that the overriding goal or is there, is this more than a one year deal? Are you going to keep going as long as you can? Like, is it like you're rejuvenated completely? Yeah. Um, who knows? I mean, I don't know if it's just me being stubborn or me, you know, always having unfinished business, but you know, I feel like throughout my career, I've never been able to fully reach the potential that I've seen in myself. And I know that probably every athlete says that. Um, but I feel like I, every time I'm able to be very happy in training and been able to be pushed by another athlete and been in a training group, um, I've always had great success. And, um, I have that again, and I kind of want to see where it leads me, um, because I think I still have a lot of great performances in me. Um, I mean, I always look that Legat was 36 when he set the American record in the 5k, um, you know, age isn't really a number as you continue to train, um, and you stay, your training may have to alter a little bit because you may need more recovery, but you can still be just as fast if you, your head's still in it, um, as you get older. Um, and so, you know, we'll, we'll see, I've always wanted to do some marathoning. Uh, last year I actually, uh, had planned on racing the New York city half. I had a contract signed with the New York Roadrunners and everything. Um, but you know, wasn't able to do that and would love to be able to get on a marathon line at some point. Um, and so, Possibly my track racing will be winding down soon, but I feel like there's a lot in the marathon that I could do as well. So you mentioned that you think you've had good results from you know being pushed by a training partner in, in training, but you said you went six years without one. I mean, why why the long gap there? You've never really you were OTC very briefly, but you've never really been part of sort of a, a larger team. It's usually been you or maybe you and one or two other guys. Why why that big gap and why that approach? Yeah. So I'm just a huge homebody and um, I really hate traveling. I hate being away from home, which is Hanover, New Hampshire. Um, and so it's pulling teeth to get me to go to a race um, because I just don't want to leave. And so I feel like the number one thing for training and high performance is you have to be happy and personally fulfilled in what you're doing. Um, and for me, going and doing a training group someplace else was never in the cards. Uh, I mean, I, I had tried that a few times. I tried that in, for skiing when I was a skier. I tried that after I graduated with, with the Oregon Track Club. And it always just, I had, would have a cloud over me and I was never actually happy there. Um, and so I knew first and foremost, I wanted to be where I was happy. And then just trying to find other people to 
train with is, is tough. Um, and having people that are at a level that can actually push me in workout days is tough. And um, I had been searching for training partners for years, offering, um, giving them a salary um, to come train with me, but was never able to put anything together and, until this year. So finally, finally, somebody was like, oh, I'll, I'll check it out. I'll see what New Hampshire is all about. So you're, are you paying Dan to train with you then? Yeah. Yeah. How much does he make? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I've been always very upfront and honest. I said I'd pay anybody twenty grand to, for per year to train with me. So yeah, so now Dan makes more money than I do. <laughs> oh that's amazing. I th- so you, yeah, that's actually that's incredible to think about. You're unsponsored and you're paying some guy twenty grand a year to train with you. That's amazing. Yeah, but you know, I think that if I was in his position and I didn't have a true contract, you know, I think that'd been great. Uh, when I came out of college, I think I would much rather enjoy that than going out to the Oregon Track Club, for example, if something like that had presented itself to me. Um, but yeah, a, a lot of people would rather go to those training groups than come to New Hampshire. <laughs> uh, ben, do you need a coach? Who's coaching you right now? I'll I'll, I'll coach you for less than 20000 and we can negotiate. <laughs> I know. Ray Tracy is my coach. Yeah. I love Ray. So that's good. <laughs> that's amazing I, I i never knew that like i feel like we should have been on let's run if we put up hey i'm looking to pay someone twenty thousand. i think you could have gotten i guess you are pretty fast it's not easy to find guys that can run with a 1302 two runner every day um you know ben big big picture i mean your career it's kind of exciting it's like okay you got pring at 36 so you can hopefully make an olympic team hopefully break 13 this year maybe hell you're not that far off from 27 flat you know, there's some there's some time goals. There's obviously the Olympic goal. Then the marathon seems to to excite you, which is all of this is, is is good to look forward to. But let's say you got you know injured tomorrow and you never ran again. Looking back at, at your career up to this point, what are you most proud of? Um, I think it's just uh, you know, it's a blessing and a, and a curse. But my consistency, I've I've been able to. Well, I've never really been able to pop the times that I've wanted to. Um, I've been able to run roughly within the same level year after year after year through thick and thin. When when things are terrible, I, um, what was it, 2018 where I ran 13.04, um, I, that year was, that was one of my lowest points. Um, and... I went into that race thinking I was probably in like 13, 20 shape, um, but was able to uh, put a race together. And I've always prided myself that when the gun goes off, I can race and I'm a racer uh, first and foremost. And sometimes workouts don't go well for, you know, weeks on end, but when the gun goes off, I'm there to race. And um, I've been, my whole always approach is, I don't really care about having the admiration of fans. It's the respect of my competitors that I care most about. And over the years, I really felt that's the case that people get upset when I'm in the race because they know that I'm going to be there and I'm going to grind it. I'm going to make it hurt. And that is the, in my mind, the highest praise. Ben, I'm curious what it feels like, to get dropped 
by your sponsor? Because you, you, we sort of chatted about this over text a couple of weeks ago, and you seemed like you were pretty happy with the way that your career went with Saucony. You were, you know, you're grateful for their support, but obviously that agreement ended at the end of 2020. You know, you still think you have more to give, and you're showing, you know, you just ran a personal best. Like when they say, "Hey, we're not going to be renewing you after being with them for so long," how does how does that feel? Um, I mean, it's it's you can't take anything of the, of the center's thing personal, right? It's it's a business first and foremost, and they have a marketing budget, and they need to see fit how to, you know, break up that marketing and spend that marketing budget how they feel like they need to get a return on their investment. And um, if they don't see that their return is as high with sponsoring me, then, you know, that's a business decision that they have. And um, I remember talking with, um, so there's, there's been a few people in the role of, you know, the athlete um, sponsor um, person um, throughout my career at, at Saucony. And speaking with the most recent one, um, I, I just remember saying that, hey, I know this new way of training or this new marketing thing is very heavily into influencers and very heavily into Instagram. And I completely see the marketing purpose of that. It's very easy and cheap to get out to a lot of people's eyes. Um, but I was very upfront and said, I'm terrible at Instagram. I'm terrible as an influencer. And so that is not something that I'm very comfortable with and very good at. And so if that's the approach that you want, I'm not your best bet. Um, and I guess they agreed as well. (laughs) I mean, but did you ever think like, Oh man, I should have like I don't think I just looked. I don't think you have a Twitter account either. Like, did you ever think, oh man, I should try to do this and maybe that would have been able to boost my value and not be able to go on? Or do you sort of accept, ah, that's not me. That's not being my authentic self. Like, take it or leave it. I mean, I think, yeah. I mean, for me personally, that's not my authentic self. If that's all that matters in today's world, then. It would be something where, and I'm sure lots of people do this, um, where you just hire it out and have somebody else do it, right? Um, and they post and they put comments and, you know, there's there's a whole underground, you know, business model of, you know, people doing other people's social media handles. Um, I don't feel like that's genuine and that's not me and, and that's not really something that I care to go about. Um, but, I mean, you can you can very easily see companies that it's very easy to get metrics. It's very easy to see engagement, um, and um, it's a very quantifiable thing. Um, I don't think all return on somebody is quantifiable through social media. I think there's other benefits that people can provide a company, um, and it's we're, we're going into a new world in in all forms of forms of sponsorship. Um, and I think in the short term, it makes a whole lot of sense for these companies to jump on the social media bandwagon. Um, but I think long term for the sport, it's probably not the best because you start selecting 
creatives and videographers over runners or over whatever market you're in. Uh, and I think long term, that's not as beneficial for the overall sport. But, you know, I can definitely see 100% the reasoning for it. Well, it is interesting, though, because I would guess probably the highest paid American distance runner and the most successful of the last 10 years, Galen Rupp, he has essentially zero social media presence, you know, doesn't ever post on Twitter, or Instagram or any of that stuff. And yet his accomplishments sort of, I guess, Nike determined he's still worth it based on what he's doing, you know, on the track and on the roads. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but if you, I mean, w- without a doubt, um, but if you look at, for example, the reaction for him winning Chicago Marathon uh, versus, say, Shalane winning the uh, New York City Marathon or Dez winning Boston there is a big component of social media that definitely elevated Chilang and Dez's win way above in the wider world of, of people, not necessarily like running nerds, but like overall people than Galen's. And so you would say, Hey, they, you know, Chilang and Dez are probably worth more money because they're able to get, you know, the, the companies were able to get a bigger return on their accomplishment. Um, and so, you, you know, you can, you can see it both ways. Ben, where do you have you thought this far ahead? But you know, you're a professional runner. Your wife is a what two-time Olympic triathlete. Yeah. Um, what do you guys? Ten years, I assume you won't be competing. Although with uh, Abdi Abdurrahman, you never know. I guess. Where, where do you see you guys? Where do you see yourself in how about fifteen years? Yeah. Um, po- what's post-running life going to be like? Do we have any idea? Yeah. No. I'm. I'm on. I'm in the Upper Valley. I'm on a big farm. I got some cows and donkeys, and um, you know, I'm roasting coffee and would love to, you know, be involved in the sport. I'd love to coach people. Uh, I think I've learned a lot over the years, especially I had some stints of training myself, coaching myself. I've made a lot of mistakes and learned a lot of things. I've been under a lot of different coaches. And um, I think there's a lot of potential to help the sport in, in the future. Um couple years ago, I thought that when I retired from the sport, I'd want nothing to do with the sport anymore. Um, and there are many reasons for that, but there were big things of like all the, you know, the dopings and the, um, it just seemed like the sport was almost a farce. And, um, but now I've started to realize, you know, those things may still be there, um, but there's a bigger, more beautiful aspect of the sport um, that isn't as result driven and more about you know individuals bettering themselves that i would be um i think that'd be really cool to be a part of i wonder if you guys i mean you guys may have been following this closer than most the gwen jorgensen attempt to go from the triathlon to the to the running i mean some people like oh why is nike paying her if we're talking about you know reaction on social media i mean my wife who does not follow running at all knows who Gwen Jorgensen is. She knows that she's the Olympian and the triathlete. So it's a story that's resonated with us, but you guys probably have better inside info. Like when she made that switch over, what did your wife think of it? Did she think she was crazy? Did she think you as a runner, did you think she might be able to rise to the top and running or did you realize it would be a long shot? Like, have you guys been? Um, I mean, I don't know Gwen personally very well. Obviously I've met her many a times, talked to her many a times, I've been around her. Um, 
but she was without a doubt very very good at triathlon um it never sounded that she really enjoyed triathlon though it always seemed that running was her actual goal um even to the point of when she first graduated from wisconsin she wanted to be a runner then um but instead was turned down by jerry and instead picked up triathlon um then became the top triathlete and then decided that her real dream was running and so like i completely understand the desire why keep doing something when you're on top just because you're on top if you don't enjoy it um and looking for different challenges um i think her statement of saying that she's going to turn around and win gold at the women's uh, marathon um was very high aspiration uh, there's no doubt in my mind that she could be a very competitive national class runner and she's proven to be that um but there's a big difference between a pure marathoner and a triathlete um and not to say that she still can't run fast she's run quite fast times um but i think when you go such big changes in training if you're training as a triathlete and you're like I'm running these fast times. She definitely was running fast times um, for a triathlete on road races and and as a you know pure runner. But having the mindset to think that when I go all in on running, I'm somehow going to be X times faster. Um, I don't think is necessarily true because fitness is fitness. And it's not like when she was the top of the world as a triathlete, she really could have been any fitter. Right. And so she might have gotten a slightly more specific strength to running, but all that swimming and all that biking translated fitness without the impact that running provides. And I think sounds like what has happened as she's switched all into running. Um, she's realized that it's very difficult to sustain a similar type load running because of all the pounding. Um, and so just because you switched to 100% running doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be faster. You could actually be the fastest if you're doing a lot of cross training on the side. It's all about what your body can absorb to get as fit as possible for you. Yeah, because when she first started running, I mean, she was way better than I thought she would be, but it hasn't really gotten any better than that. You know, this, I think she ran like 15, 12 or something. Yeah. Maybe it's because her, yeah, that's an interesting way to describe it. Like, her overall fitness has maybe gone down because she can't train for hours when you're running like you can in triathlon. Um, so back to the immediate future. It, what, Olympic trials, what's the number one priority? Five or 10? I mean, it's an interesting year where the five is first, the 10 is second. It's the first time that's been for a while. Um, I would want to get another crack at a 5K in. I haven't raced a 5K two years. Um, uh, and so, you know, it'd be, it'd be nice to get another crack at the 5k. Um, I think leading into this 10k, I thought I was in better 5k shape than 10k shape. Um, so we'll see. I just don't know how many racing opportunities I'm going to have. Um, but, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting. Uh, we'll, we'll see when we get closer to see which which one I'm, I'm, I'm leaning towards. How long did you know about this 10 K? Like, like how long were you training for it? When did, when did you, when did you become aware of it? I mean, cause it's an, obviously 
in the past, nobody's run a 10K in February, middle of February. So when did you first hear about it? When did you start training for it? And I mean, I don't think I've done anything. I def, my training hasn't changed at all. Like I didn't, we didn't do anything special for this 10K. Um, I think I, the biggest thing I did was I dropped my miles from 110 down to 80 um, the two weeks before and gave myself some recovery for the first time in a while. Um, but as far as anything 10K specific, we really weren't doing anything 10K specific. We were just doing the same training I've been doing for the last, you know, really last year. Um, when I learned about the 10K was there was rumors that it was going to happen um, at the end of January. Um, and so I kind of put it filed away in the back of my head that this could be an opportunity. I, we didn't know that I'd be allowed in um, because I knew it was going to be a Jerry race. And so who knows if other people are going to be allowed in. And I don't think I realized until I maybe three weeks ago that I was going to be allowed in and be good to go. Um, so originally I was going to, I was playing on race in Austin, which is this weekend coming up. Um, and so I didn't pull out of Austin until probably what, two weeks ago when I knew for sure that I was going to be able to get into the 10 K. Okay. But you were, so you're playing running a 10 K along though in February. I was going to run a 5 K at Austin. Okay. Well, with the new shoes, aren't your legs recovered? Why don't we go do the 5k this week? <laughs> no, I mean, that's one of the things I definitely learned. You can't be greedy. You gotta, you gotta, uh, recover and look at bigger goals. <laughs> COVID year real quick. You, you said you, you didn't race at all, but are you close to this type of fitness all the time? You said your training didn't change that much. I mean, did you give yourself any time trials? Any, what did you do all of 20? I did do one time trial a few weeks ago and it went horrible. Um, the time trial was 5k at 10k pace. So 66s. And then I was supposed to do 1k straight into it. So it's 6k total, um, all out. And, uh, my training partner, Dan, he went, um, we traded off through two miles and then I went from there. And I went through 5K in 1348, feeling terrible, ran one more lap and pulled the plug because I wasn't going to pick it up at all. Um, took five minutes and then did a few 400s. And that was, that was the time trial. So it really wasn't anything. <laughs> Nothing to write home about. <laughs> but why didn't you race last year? Um, I didn't feel that it was worth the risk and worth the, it just didn't seem right to, during everything going on to travel to a race. Um, if there was a race within driving distance of me last year that I felt was a necessity for example, something that was going to be very fast or something that was going to have a prize purse so I could actually make money, um, I would have done those. Um, but none of those presented itself. And I didn't feel like it was right to travel to race. And so I did do one race in um, August. I did a uh, 3K time trial at the Hanover High School track. 
Um, I don't know if you remember the condition of a Hanover High School track, but it is probably for your typical high school, it's probably a C minus for track condition. Um, there's some good waves in it. Um, and I had some of the Dartmouth guys alternate laps to pace me and I ran uh, 744. And those are the two, that was the only other quote unquote race that, that I did. Gotcha. But it was, you know, hand timed, uh, you know, in the afternoon, it wasn't an actual race. <laughs> Probably still a stadium record for Hanover High School. <laughs> it might have been. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious, like looking at the current state of the 5K and 10K. I mean, these teams—you know—these teams are hard to make. I mean, you've made, you made the one in 2015, but like you know, you've been sixth and fifth at the Olympic Trials. You were fourth in 2017. You were seventh, but did that made that team in 2019 as well because you had the standard. Um, you were third American in this 10K behind Grant Fisher and Woody Kincaid. Then you've got Lopez Lemong. You've got Chalimo in the 5K, maybe the 10K. I mean, where do you assess how you stack up against those guys right now? How do you feel about your Olympic chances? Yeah. Um, I mean, talking with Ray after the race, um, he was very happy with how things went considering all the training we've been doing. Um and he was like, yeah, I wasn't expecting you to be able to sprint a hard last lap with those guys. You just haven't been doing anything that would be allow you to do that. And so he was like, well, the goal is you're going to have to be in probably sub 27 shape and sub 13 minute shape to make the team at the Olympics for the trials. And you know, he's like, we're on pace right now and we just got to keep doing what we're doing. And um, by the time, you know, a few more months roll around and you're able to do that, those faster things, then he's like, I, I have all confidence that, that we're going to be there. And so it's just having that confidence and just keep being able to stay hopefully healthy, knock on wood and injury free and, and keep doing the work. Robert, do you have anything else to ask Ben before we let him go? No, this has been great. I've been vindicated. Times are meaningless. I didn't have to say it. Ben said it himself. <laughs> it's been fun, fun, fun talking to you, Ben. Um, and it's cool. I always, I, the older I get, the, the more I, pull, I, I root for the older people. So, <laughs> except in, well, yeah, I guess that's still in coaching as well. Robert always pulls for the older coaches and not the younger coaches. Anyone who's younger than him in coaching, but that's that's a different <laughs> different topic for our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Ben, do you have any race plans coming up or are you off for a while? Um, we'll see. Uh, we're trying to see how I bounce back from the 10K and, and how I'm feeling. Um, potentially do um, Gate River 15K. Um, other than that, who knows what's out there. Um, so yeah, I don't know. <laughs> hopefully, Hopefully find a race before between now and the trials at least. All right, Ben. Well, I guess one last question. Who's the biggest Dartmouth cross country and track and field legend? You, yourself, or Jonathan? I mean, excuse me, you, yourself. That's the same person. You, Bob, Bob Kempinen, or Jonathan Galt? Like, <laughs> I mean, Jonathan Galt's got to be up there, right? <laughs> I still remember well, uh, at uh, Beijing at the the uh, World Champs there. Didn't didn't he, John? Didn't you win like the eight hundred, the media eight hundred, or something like that? I mean, that's pretty legendary. So, you know, that's got to be up there. <laughs> I was thinking, I thought John didn't laugh, and now really John's screen is frozen. So hopefully this is being recorded, Ben, at the end. Uh-oh, uh-oh. <laughs>
Well, good luck, and we hope to see the sub-13 and sub-27 soon. Oh, well, thank you so much. Thanks for uh, having me on. It's certainly sub-210 in the marathon as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, take care.